welcome to another edition of Sunday Dive. I'm Kitty Patrizio, and today we're talking about the readings for the fifth Sunday in Ordinary Time, February 7th, 2021. We find ourselves in Capernaum in our gospel scene today. Jesus has just finished driving out a demon and at the prompting of his disciples, turns his attention to illness. Performing the first of many miracles, the whole town turns out to see this wonder worker so that our Lord is eventually forced to seek out solitude on the outskirts of town before continuing his mission in the neighboring cities. As always, you can find links to resources and references in the show notes. And if you haven't already, please give us a review on a podcast or a Stitcher. Welcome back to Sunday Dive, everyone. I'm so grateful if you're tuning back in with us. Uh, I took a little hiatus, of course, but here we are again, and we find ourselves in a new cycle of reading. So today we are diving right into ordinary time with the fifth Sunday in ordinary time, but we are no longer in year A. We are in year B, February 7th, 2021, the dates for our readings. Um, Year B is Mark, the Gospel of Mark. So if you're familiar with the lectionary cycle, you know it's a three-year cycle, year A, year B, and year C. And the three cycles take us through the three synoptic gospels in the order in which we find them in the canonical scriptures. So year A is Matthew, year B is Mark, and year C is Luke. We don't read... um, through John in the way that we read through the synoptics, but John is inserted in a smattering of various places throughout the liturgical year. We tend to read the most from John actually during Lent. So we'll still get some John, uh, no worries there. But this year in year B, we find ourselves in the cycle of readings of Mark, the gospel of Mark. Mark is kind of the uh, forgotten gospel in many ways. So. John gets special attention because he's John. He's not one of the synoptics. He's different, right? Matthew and Luke have their own kind of flavor as well that has really been honed in on by scholars and theologians and teachers. But Mark is kind of left to himself in many ways. Mark is the shortest gospel. It is arguably the easiest to read. Uh, If you want to recommend a gospel to someone who has never read through the scriptures, who's never read through the gospels, um, is just kind of coming to discover Jesus and who he is. Mark is a great place to start. You can easily read Mark's gospel in one sitting. So for example, when I went to the Holy Land for the first time a few years ago, um, I just fell in love with scripture all over again. And so on the plane ride home, all I wanted to do was read the Bible. And so uh, I just read the entire gospel of Mark. And maybe that's actually not a good example because it is like a 10 hour flight, but it didn't take that long. (laughs) It only took like an hour. Um, So Mark is a great gospel to just sit down with and read. And as we read through the gospel of Mark, um, we'll see that he does actually have his own kind of flavor uh, to it. And um, I'm not going to spend this beginning episode just focusing too much on the gospel itself, even though it's our first kind of encounter in this podcast with this gospel, uh, because I want to dive deeply into the specifics of our gospel reading today. But as we 
encounter Mark over the coming weeks and months, we'll draw out some of those the some of those characteristics of Mark's gospel. Um, but a couple here to begin with. Uh, Mark is thought to have been written for a Gentile audience likely a Roman audience, okay? So we'll see as we read through the gospel of Mark that Mark will explain things about, for example, Jewish culture. So there's an idea that his audience was not as familiar with Jewish culture as, for example, Matthew's audience was. So things that Matthew takes for granted, Mark doesn't. Mark's gospel obviously is also short, but it's written in a way that is kind of like action-packed. This is hard to discern, when the Greek is translated into the English. But um, next week, next episode, we'll take a look at our gospel, which is the healing of the uh, man with leprosy, the healing of the leper. And um, Mary Healy, a Catholic biblical scholar, um, in her commentary on the gospel of Mark, spends a few lines, um, I believe in her introduction, translating uh, this story, the healing of the leper, um, from the the fascinating kind of Greek that Mark uses. And she tries to bring that into the English and you'll get an idea for how Mark writes in this uh, very vivid kind of action packed sort of way. So he writes in uh, what's called the uh, historical present. And I'm going to just leave it at that because we could, I could, I could keep going down this tangent because it's very excited, but exciting, but we want to save something for next week. In other words, though, suffice it to say at this point that Mark writes his gospel as if he's telling a story. Um, and it's very, very fascinating how he uses the Greek. So again, not going to continue spending too much time on an overview of Mark's gospel because I want to dive right into our gospel reading today. But as we work through Mark, we will draw out some of those, um, some of those things that make his gospel characteristically his. All right. Now we are diving into uh, Mark's gospel kind of right in the the middle of it, right? Um, we find ourselves only at uh, uh, the kind of middle part of chapter one, which I know is not very far into it, but if you've been with me for a while in scripture, you know, and in the podcast, you know that a lot can happen in, in just a few verses, especially in Mark's gospel. So to get us kicked off, I'm going to read our gospel together as usual. Then we're going to go through a little bit of context for what has been happening in Mark's gospel before we encounter um, our story here, beginning at Mark chapter one, verse 29. And then we're just going to dive right into the text and have a lot of fun doing it um, as we always do. All right. So our gospel today for the fifth Sunday in ordinary time, year B, February 7th, 2021 is from Mark chapter one, verse 29 through 39. I'm reading from the revised standard version. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay sick with a fever and immediately they told him of her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her and she served them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons and the whole city was gathered together about the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And in the morning, a great while before day, he rose and went out to a lonely place and there he prayed. 
And Simon and those who were with him pursued him and they found him and said to him, everyone is searching for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went through all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Again, that was Mark chapter one, verses 29 through 39. So a little bit of context for us here, because we're diving right into uh, the, the hurried kind of action of Mark's gospel. Mark opens his gospel with John the Baptist, okay? So the infancy narratives that we find in Matthew and Luke are absent from Mark's gospel. He just dives right into it with an introduction of John the Baptist. And obviously with an introduction of John the Baptist, we immediately come upon the uh, account of Jesus's baptism. So Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. And then Mark tells us that he immediately goes out into the desert, into this deserted place, which we actually see in our gospel here. We'll get into that in a few minutes. He goes into a deserted place and he is there tempted by the devil. We're familiar with this story, right? But it's Mark's version of it. After the temptation in the desert, we are told of John's arrest and it appears from the details of Mark's gospel that John's arrest prompts Jesus to leave Judea because Judea, the South of Israel is where John the Baptist was. It was where Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. And it's also where he went out into the desert. So this is all in the South of Palestine and John's arrest appears to prompt Jesus to leave Judea and to go up into the north to Galilee, which is where he is from. And if you're familiar at all with Jesus' public ministry, you know that Galilee in the north is where the bulk of it takes place. And so Jesus leaves Judea. He heads back up to Galilee where he is from. Mark tells us that he calls his first four disciples on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. They are Simon and Andrew, who are brothers and James and John, who are brothers. So these two brothers, Simon and Andrew, James and John, he calls them. And then he makes his home in Capernaum, which is where Simon and Andrew live. And this is where we get uh, closer to the proximity of our gospel. So Mark settles Jesus, if you will, in Capernaum. And then we very quickly find Jesus in the synagogue in Capernaum. And there Jesus does two things. He teaches and he does an exorcism. And this is exactly where our gospel picks up here at verse 29. So Jesus is in the synagogue. He has been teaching. His teaching provokes a demon who is possessing a man. And Jesus drives out that demon. And this causes quite a stir, as you can imagine. And so at verse 29, we get, uh, we pick up from the scene of Jesus driving out this demon. He's finished teaching. He's finished his exorcism. And it tells us immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew. Okay, now I don't want to dwell too much on the archaeology of Capernaum. Um, I have another episode where I did that and I'll, I'll be sure to link to it in the show notes. But if you go to present day Capernaum and you evaluate, you see the archeological remains of Capernaum, the synagogue is very prominent. 
Um, and the, the synagogue that you see, the the four walls or what's left standing of the four walls of the synagogue currently there are, I believe, only from the third or fourth century AD. But um, the foundation, which you still can see, which is still visible, it's made of basalt stone, which is uh, native to this area of the North Shore of the Sea of Galilee, is still visible. And that is from the first century synagogue at Capernaum. So all this to say that there are still remnants of this very synagogue in which Jesus preached in Capernaum. Now you're in Capernaum, you're looking at the archeological remains of the um, synagogue there at Capernaum and immediately to your right or behind you, depending on where you're standing are more archeological remains with a church built over them. And these are the archeological remains of Simon Peter's home or Simon and Andrew's home, according to what we have in Mark's gospel here. And archeological archeologists will say that um, these remains do appear to be a multi-family home. So very easily Simon and Andrew could have dwelled in this home. But uh, when it says he immediately left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew, we're talking just a few yards away. A few yards apart are the synagogue and Simon and Andrew's home. So Jesus leaves the synagogue, enters the home of Simon and Andrew, where he's arguably made his own home. And we're told that Simon's mother-in-law lay sick with a fever. And we're told that they immediately told him of her. Now, remember, put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples, put ourselves in the shoes of the people who are encountering this scene. Okay. Jesus is baptized. Jesus uh, travels from Judea to Capernaum. Jesus preaches in the synagogue in Capernaum and then holy cow, he's driving out demons. Okay. So this is Jesus in his first act of performing miracles of performing divine activity. Right? So Simon and Andrew just see Jesus drive out at a demon. And what do they do? They're like, well, my my mother-in-law is sick and they tell Jesus about her. And we have the sense embedded in that of, you know, they told him of her, according to Mark's gospel, of expectation, a sense of expectation and a sense of faith. Why? Well, Jesus just drove out a demon. So can Jesus cure the sick? We can assume that from the reaction of Simon, immediately choosing to tell Jesus about his mother-in-law that there's expectation and hope that this man who just drove out a demon can also drive out illness. And so what happens? Verse 31, Jesus came, took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her and she served him. She served them actually is what it says, but obviously in, in many ways, she's serving our Lord who just served her, right? We'll dive into that uh, in a second. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. The Greek here, a gyro, a gyro is used in other healing stories in Mark's gospel. But interestingly enough, it's also used all throughout the New Testament in reference to Jesus being raised from the dead. It's used all throughout the New Testament. This Greek verb, 
agiro in reference to Jesus being raised from the dead. I can just give you a few examples here. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. Agiro. Galatians 1 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised Agiro him from the dead. Romans chapter four, verse 24, it will be reckoned to us who believe in him that raised a Giro from the dead, Jesus, our Lord. Let's continue. Acts three, verse 14, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the author of life whom God raised a Giro from the dead. And finally, Acts chapter four, verse 10, be it known to you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised a Giro from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well, right? And that last verse fits in beautifully with what we're trying to show forth here. In that last verse there in Acts, there's an explanation. How did this man... How was this man healed in the book of Acts? He was healed by the power that raised Jesus from the dead. The same power that brought Christ back to life is the same power that healed the man in Acts of the Apostles. And it's also the same power. It's also the same power that brought Peter's mother-in-law, Simon Peter's mother-in-law back to life again. Okay, so what is going on here? What is going on here? What Jesus is doing in his public ministry is a foreshadowing of what he is going to do on the cross and what he's going to do on Easter Sunday, but it's also a foreshadowing of what he's going to do for us. So the life that Jesus brings is not just a life for the body, right? It's so much more than that. And the whole purpose for which Jesus uh performs miracles is to show that he brings a life that is not just temporal, but a life that is eternal, a life that is eternal. Sure. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, right? But is that the only thing that Jesus did for Lazarus? Is it the most important thing that Jesus did for Lazarus? No. In fact, the most important thing that Jesus did for Lazarus was give him eternal life, eternal life. And so when we see the miracles taking place, we need to recognize what they are actually signifying, what desires God actually has for us, not only to feel our, to heal our physical ailments, but to heal our spiritual ailments. And then vice versa too, because sometimes we struggle with this. Jesus not only wants to heal our spiritual ailments, but he also wants to heal our physical ailments, okay? Jesus sees us as as a whole body and soul, but he is bringing us to life. He He is bringing the sick to health. He's bringing the dead to life, a life that he himself will be raised in a gyro and a life that he will give to each and every one of us, not only, uh, you know, in the next life in heaven, but at the end of time, 
when uh, every man has his body returned to him in the resurrection of the dead. Okay. So here um, in this beautiful one little Greek verb, so much is contained. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, raised her up a gyro and the fever left her. The fever left her. Here even we have subtle parallels with uh, the exorcism that just took place in the synagogue in Capernaum. And we were still in Capernaum. So the synagogue right across the street, right? From Simon Peter's home. So here in our account in our gospel, the fever is said to have left Simon Peter's mother-in-law, right? Well, if we go back a few verses to Jesus exercising the demon in the synagogue, the same sort of language is used in which the unclean spirit leaves the possessed man. We can draw briefly on the gospel according to Luke here. I try not to to, to stray too much for our, from our particular gospel here, but we can draw briefly on the gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter four, verse 39 where Jesus rebukes the fever, just like he previously rebuked the evil spirit, okay? So in Luke's gospel, Jesus rebukes the fever in the same way as in Mark's gospel, just a few verses previously, where Jesus rebukes the evil spirit, all right? So clear Subtle, but nonetheless, in my opinion, clear parallels between exorcism and the healing that takes place for Simon Peter's mother-in-law. Okay, what does this tell us? What does this tell us? That both demons and illness are a distortion of God's plan. They are a distortion of the divine plan. Both demons and illness are a distortion of the divine plan that God has come into the world to do battle with. We'll get to that towards the end of our podcast. Why I use that language, God doing battle. But nevertheless, it's true that demons and illness both distort the divine plan that God has in mind for us And so Jesus comes into the world to right those wrongs, to drive out demons, to heal the sick from their illnesses in order to usher in a a new world order, right? A new world order that we see um, this side of heaven primarily in the church. Okay, so he comes He takes her by the hand. He lifts her up. The fever leaves her just like the demon left the possessed man in the synagogue just a few verses earlier. And what are we told? How does Simon Peter's mother-in-law respond to this great gift? How does she respond to this great gift? We're told that she serves them. She serves them. The Greek word there is diakoneo. Diakoneo, which is the same word that we get, uh, the same word from which we get our word deacon. So you're probably familiar with the the ministers in the church, the ordained ministers in the church are deacons who are ordained primarily for service. Diakoneo, diakoneo, 
we see this word at other places that can help us kind of elucidate the implications of it. And not only the implications of it, but the importance of it. This is something that we can easily, easily gloss over. So for example, at Mark chapter one, verse 13, just a few verses earlier, when we found Jesus being tempted in the desert after our Lord overcomes his temptations, we're told that angels came and ministered to him or some translations say angels came and served him. Well, what's the Greek verb there? Diakoneo. Diakoneo. Elsewhere in Mark's gospel, we can turn to um, Mark chapter 15, verse 40, where we find ourselves at Jesus's passion. Mark chapter 15, verse 40 says, there were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, the younger of, and of Joseph and Salome, who, when he was in Galilee, followed him and ministered to him, served him, What's the Greek? Diakoneo. And then we can continue, uh, this is backing up a little bit in Mark's gospel, but a beautiful elucidation of the importance of this. We can back up to Mark chapter 10, verses 43 through 45. Jesus is speaking to the disciples. He says, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all for the son of man also came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many whoever would be great among you must be your servant what is that word in greek diakonos Diakonos, deacon, service. And then again, for the son of man also came not to be served. That's the verb, verbal version. <laughs> I guess you could say there. Diakoneo came not to be served, but to serve. Again, diakoneo. Jesus comes and he serves. This is precisely what we see him doing here in our gospel. He drives out the demon and then he serves Simon Peter's mother-in-law. How? By healing her. And how does she respond to him? Through service as well. Through service as well. Friends, we have to ask ourselves, this is a point of meditation and a moment for an examination of conscience. I am abundantly blessed by our Lord constantly. My life, if I'm willing to see it, is a shower of constant blessings where Jesus serves me, where Jesus serves me. Again, a point of meditation. Do we see in our daily life the ways that Jesus serves me? So often we have a view of our Lord in which he just requires service of us. And that is not untrue. I mean, you're already seeing where I'm going with this. If Simon Peter's mother-in-law is uh, an example of discipleship because she responds to our Lord's gift with diaconeo, with service, we ought to do the same. But 
Why do we love God? Because God first loved us. Why do we serve God? Because God first served us. So, so beginning, beginning kind of an examination of conscience, beginning a point of meditation. Do I recognize that in my daily life, Jesus still serves me. Jesus still serves me and he delights in serving me. And do I return the favor? Do I serve him? And even more than that, do I delight in serving him? And sometimes as we uh, perform this sort of examination of conscience, we might find ourselves saying, well, how can I serve you, Lord? Or we might merely think of, for example, the Ten Commandments as a means in which to serve our Lord. And that is true. That is a true means of service to our Lord. But the beautiful thing about the way that God created us as a community of beings is that we can quite literally serve Jesus by serving others. If you ever wanted to give our Lord service, have you ever had a moment when you are moved with love for our Lord and wish that you could express it in a human sort of way, right? In the same way that you you express love uh, to your spouse, to your children, to your parents. The beautiful thing is that according to Jesus's self-identification, which with each one of us, we can serve him in serving those around us. Whether that's making dinner, whether that's uh, doing chores, whether that's giving foot rubs, whether that's picking people up from soccer, whether that's on and on and on and on and on. Our Lord in his beautiful providence gives us opportunities to quite literally serve him. Do we take him up on these opportunities? Let's continue. Verse 32, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons. And the whole city was gathered together about the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. That's a good pericope for us to evaluate there. Those two verses, verse 32, 33 and 34. Mark begins saying that evening at sundown, as we continue working through the gospel of Mark, if you are a careful reader of his gospel, you'll know that he has a, proclivity to um, kind of redundancy or maybe a more positive way of saying is, is duplication. So he, he will sometimes duplicate his descriptions. So he does this uh, at verse 32 that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who are sick or possessed with demons. Now there's kind of another duplication going on though, in this whole pericope. And it's something that biblical scholars will refer to. It's a uh, literary device that uh, Bible scholars call chiastic structure. And we've talked about this before in podcasts because it's all over the scriptures. Um, And it's a fun little, little literary tool that the gospel writers 
will use. So in chiastic structure, um, you'll have something like uh, point A, point B, and then how how scholars will write it out is uh, point B prime and then point A prime. And so the A's are going to mirror each other and the B's are going to mirror each other. And it, uh, it it's kind of this kind of inward pointing structure. If I had a whiteboard and this was a video, I would write it out for you, but you'll have to try to, to follow me here. So the chiastic structure, the beginnings of the chiastic structure, we already had, we already talked about. Um, the point A, if you will, is the initial exorcism that occurs at the synagogue there in Capernaum. The initial kind of point B is the healing of Simon Peter's mother-in-law. Now B prime or that point that mirrors that healing is the healing of all the sick. And then the point A prime that mirrors the exorcism of the man in the synagogue is the exorcism of all those possessed. Okay. So Jesus performs the exorcism for one person in the synagogue, and then he heals one person in Simon and Andrew's home. And what is he going to do now? He's going to heal all the sick who are brought to him, and he's going to exercise, perform exorcisms on all those possessed brought to him. And this is the the duplication, the chiastic structure going on here. And it in many ways confirms uh, what we read earlier, which isn't technically in our gospel. It's the verse just immediate to just previous to our uh, gospel. So verse 28, after the exorcism in the synagogue uh, tells us, and at once his fame, Jesus's fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And so this idea of not just some of the sick being brought to Jesus, but all the sick being brought to Jesus and not just some of the possessed being brought to Jesus, but all of the possessed being brought to Jesus it confirms what we were told in verse 28 before our gospel picked up here with verse 29, that at once his fame, indeed, indeed his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And we could see how this could be the case when we consider what kind of city Capernaum was. And again, I'm not going to go into too much detail here because I spent uh, a lot of time in a previous episode um, talking about the fascinating character of the city of Capernaum, but suffice it to say that Capernaum was on a major, it was a lodging town on a major highway um, that people would use to travel from the north down to the south, um, most frequently to Jerusalem, or they would go down to Jerusalem um, to the south. And then they, when, when they arrived in Jerusalem, they would begin heading east into Jericho to other countries. And Capernaum was known as a place that people would stay. Like it had lots of hotels, if you will. And caravans would stop there for the night. And so it was a brilliant place for Jesus to settle himself in his public ministry because every day he would have had a new group of people who would have experienced the wonders of his miracles and his words, his teaching. And then they would have packed up the next morning and headed out of town and literally spread his message in many ways for him. And so we could see how even in just a single day, because if you're paying attention to Mark's gospel here, this is all one day, but nevertheless, we could see how in even just a single day, Jesus's fame could begin to spread by the very nature of the city of Capernaum itself. I want to back up for a second here though, to that kind of um, duplication that I pointed out that 
Mark likes to do that evening at sundown. They brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons. Well, we can ask ourselves, you know, if you're really paying attention to scripture here, why, wait, wait a second. Why did they wait until evening? Why did they wait until sundown to bring to him all who were sick or possessed? Now, if you had been reading Mark's gospel carefully, you would have remembered that at verse 21, when we're told that Jesus enters Capernaum, we're told that he enters Capernaum on what day? On the Sabbath, okay? And you probably know that there's lots of uh, regulations on the Sabbath. There's lots of prohibitions on the Sabbath. And one of the prohibitions of the Sabbath was carrying burdens. You could not carry a burden on the Sabbath, And so it would not have been possible for people to carry their sick to him without um, uh, breaking the Sabbath regulation. And so the people in Capernaum are moved by Jesus, but they're still very faithful to the Mosaic law. And so they wait until evening, they wait until sundown. But as soon as the sun goes down, we can imagine people beginning to stream out of their houses. There's kind of a pent up uh, hope a pent up joy, a pent up excitement. And as dusk begins to fall on the city of Capernaum, people begin to light their oil lamps. When we normally have like the quieting of a city, you know, when people normally roll up the sidewalks, as they like to say, we have the opposite taking place. It's like it's Halloween night or something. I'm trying to think of an evening that's that's like that in American culture. And, and Halloween is kind of like that, where the, the daytime feels kind of quiet as all the children have this pent-up excitement for dusk. And then as the sun begins to set and slowly here and there, we have the streetlights coming on and slowly here and there, we're beginning to see the, the stars twinkling in the sky. Then the buzz begins. Then you start to hear the little children's voices outside in the neighborhood. You begin to hear people knocking on doors. You begin to hear the laughter and the joy of free candy, right? Of course, free candy brings joy. And so we kind of have that that going on here, a little bit of kind of the, the reverse, not the quieting down of the evening, but the ratcheting up the excitement. And so people put their their sick on pallets, likely, and they bring those who are sick and those who are possessed by demons, they bring them to Jesus. The whole city was gathered together about the door of Simon and Andrew's home, the whole city. And we're told in his, in his immense love for humanity, he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. He healed many who were sick with the various diseases and cast out many demons. And interestingly enough, he would not permit the demons to speak. And why would he not permit the demons to speak? He would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Because they knew him. Now, why would Jesus not want the demons to proclaim his identity? Well, if you 
really evaluate the gospels, you'll find that Jesus is shrewd. Jesus understands human nature as our creator. Jesus understands human nature better than anybody understands human nature. And he understands that just as he's gradually revealed himself in the Old Testament through the prophets and through the patriarchs, Jesus himself as revelation itself, Jesus in his very being is revelation itself. Still, he needs to reveal himself gradually. All right. Now, what do the demons want to do? They want to thwart that plan. But notice, fascinatingly enough, they can't speak untruth. Like they don't lie about who Jesus is. Uh, (laughs) Rather, what the demons would like to do is cry out his identity. Uh, for, for one, because I think in many ways they, they can't but help to do that, but also because uh, unable to speak untruth, unable to speak lies, uh, they hope to foil Jesus's plan of revealing himself slowly and gradually, gradually opening the hearts of the people towards him so that they can come to believe in him. The demons just want to shout out the truth. They just want to shout out the truth. So for example, the demon that he drove out and that Jesus drove out in the synagogue at verse 24 uh, shouts out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? And the demon continues. He says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And as he's speaking, Jesus commands him to silence And so uh, just as he did with that initial uh, exorcism in the synagogue, so Jesus does again here at verse 34. He casts out the demons, but does not permit them to speak. Why? Because they know who he is. We've been talking about parallels here. And there's another fascinating parallel that's uh, worth bringing in here. Um, Just a few verses back, we had another uh, identification of Jesus. So not only will the demons identify who Jesus is, but at Jesus's baptism, a voice from heaven identified who Jesus was. And so it's interesting because this parallel here of revelation, not only uh, are, are the heavens revealing who Jesus is at his baptism, but, um, Also, the underworld is revealing who Jesus is in the demons who want to speak forth or even scream forth his identity. I know who you are, the Holy One of God, but Jesus silences it. He silences them. Let's go back to the theme of Sabbath here, right? So we said that the uh, villagers of Capernaum are waiting until the evening to bring him their sick and their possessed because they cannot carry burdens on the Sabbath. Now, um, one scripture scholar brings in a fascinating detail, a really, really fascinating detail of, uh, of, of Jewish practice at, uh, at the time of um of Jesus's uh, 
miracle here in in the first century. So Joel Marcus, uh, a biblical scholar who I'll, I'll draw on his commentary quite a bit over the next few months as we move through year B of our uh, liturgical cycle, he brings in what he calls the, or what is called the Havdalah service, the Havdalah service. So um, Jewish people are very liturgical, just like Catholics are. Um, and they have uh, services for a lot of things, liturgical services for a lot of things. And so one of the liturgical services that they had, the Havdalah service, um, marked the end of the Sabbath. I'm just going to read you a direct quote here from Joel Marcus in his commentary on the Gospel of Mark. He says, The end of Sabbath context is important because this period was marked in Jewish homes by the Havdalah service in which God's creation of the world was celebrated. This custom seems to go back to second temple times. Um, and that's an important, I'm, I'm jumping in here, but that's an important aside because the time in which Jesus lives is second temple times. Okay. So Joel Marcus is making the argument that Havdalah um, seems to have been a service that took place even in second, tec- second temple times. I'm jump jump back into a direct quote here. Marcus says, in some rabbinic and Jewish magical texts and formula, the Havdalah period is even associated with the fight against demonic powers and other magical procedures. He continues, these associations of the Havdalah period perhaps provide part of the background for Mark's picture of the divine act of eschatological recreation whereby Jesus heals and casts out demons in Peter's house at the conclusion of the Sabbath. This is super fascinating, super, super fascinating. Okay, so we have the Sabbath, which as you know, uh, celebrates the culmination of creation. So the seventh day is the most important day of creation, even though no creation took place on the seventh day, because on the seventh day, God rested. And theologians, even Jewish uh, rabbi would argue that this kind of points towards our telos or our end, that just as God rested, we ought to rest as well, right? That's exactly why the rabbis and the, the Mosaic law said that you cannot carry a burden on the Sabbath because we are emulating God here on the Sabbath who is resting, okay? And we could spend probably three episodes talking about what that means from the perspective of Trinitarian theology, but let's just stick with the scriptures here and the old Testament and its implications for the new Testament. So the people of Capernaum, the Jewish people have just finished celebrating the Sabbath, which is a day set apart. In fact, when we talk about something being holy, literally like the etymology of that word means something set apart and Havdalah here in Hebrew, um, basically means distinction, okay? So the whole reason the Havdalah was celebrated at the end of the Sabbath was to mark the distinction between um, between what was set apart and what was no longer set apart. So like what is sanctified and then what is normal, what is every day, if you will, okay? So they celebrate the Havdalah and according to... Well, according to Marcus here, according to rabbinic texts, the Havdalah period is associated with the fight against demonic powers. Why? Because this separation, this distinction between the holiness of the Sabbath and then the everyday, and not only just the everyday, but the evil 
And so as, as Joel Marcus points out at the, towards the end of that quote that I read you, it appears that if we bring in this idea of the Havdalah as dusk falls and Sabbath gives way to the every day, there is a fight, a battle against the demonic. And it's in this very time period, this time of the day, this time of the week, that Jesus begins to do that battle in the city of Capernaum against illness and against demonic powers. Very, very fascinating. Okay, if that is not enough, if that is not enough, we can look even uh, at a, a another even more simple uh, uh, and even more uh, simple parallel that we can draw here. But the simplicity does not mean it's less profound. So how does verse 32 begin? That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons. And remember, sundown is the beginning of a new day, okay? So at sundown, the Sunday began. So Sabbath is a Saturday. And at sundown on the evening of Saturday, the next day begins, the Sunday begins. So it's the day after the Sabbath when the people began bringing to Jesus those who are sick and possessed by demons. And we can ask ourselves in Mark's gospel, is there another day after the Sabbath? And the answer is yes. Mark chapter 16, verse one. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early, On the first day of the week, they went to the tomb when the sun had risen and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the door of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone was rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, do not be amazed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified, he has risen a gyro. He is not here. Mark chapter 16, verses one through, oh, what was that? One through six. Oh, the day after the Sabbath, not only here in Mark chapter one, but also in Mark chapter 16, when Jesus is raised from the dead. And so, as we said at the beginning of our, our episode today, Jesus is beginning the work of reconciling the world to himself, the work of redeeming us and rescuing us from the diversions and the distortions of evil, of sickness, and of demons. And at the end of the day, at the end of the gospel, And at the climax of Jesus's life and ministry, that power is going to come forth once and for all to defeat evil, to defeat sickness, to defeat death on that day after the Sabbath that we read about here in Mark chapter 16. Honestly, this would be 
a great place to just leave our podcast because I don't know that I can get, um, I don't know that we could get much better than that. There's some beautiful things in our last few verses that I want to try to breeze through here. So let's pick up at verse 35. And in the morning, a great while before day, he rose and went out to a lonely place and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him pursued him and they found him and said to him, everyone is searching for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Uh, a couple things here, um, and a, a lot of the beautiful details in this pericope here, this section here, are kind of hidden in the Greek. Uh, so in the morning, a great while before day. So Jesus has just spent the whole evening. Remember, he had to wait until sundown for the sick and those possessed to come to him. He's He probably was working on uh, healing and working on exorcisms late into the night, possibly even early into the morning, but nonetheless, a great while before day, Jesus gets up in the morning and evidently he leaves the house before anyone else is awake and without anyone else knowing. And what does he do? He goes out to a lonely place, a lonely place. The Greek is a Raymond topon, a Raymond topon. And this is a parallel with the lonely place that Jesus went to in his temptation. So at Mark chapter one, verse 12, we read about a desert and Eremos here to make a distinction from an actual desert, but still a sort of deserted place. Mark tells us he goes to an Eremon topon. So Jesus is trying to recapture the intimacy of his temptation in the desert where he spent time dedicating himself to prayer and, and, and communication fellowship with the father, with the Trinity. Right. And so Jesus is, is continuing that here. He prayed, he prayed something so important. The others apparently wake up, recognize that he is gone and they're annoyed at him. And this is implicit in the text a little bit, but most biblical scholars appear to agree with this idea of the implicit kind of annoyance because the Greek word that's used for, uh, that's translated here, pursued him, dioko, is hostile. It has a hostile sense to it. So for example, at Exodus 14, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word dioko is used uh, to talk about Pharaoh's pursuit of the Israelites. We could even translate it, they hunted him. And when they found him, they said, everyone is searching for you. Like, what the heck are you doing? And what does this show us for Jesus? Is healing people, is driving out demons, is all that important to him? Absolutely. But what has to come first? Prayer. Prayer always has to come first. But once he is finished in prayer, he yields to the desires of not only his disciples, but those around him but he doesn't just go back to Capernaum. He says, I have to go elsewhere. Uh, let us go on to the next towns, he says. Um, it's beautiful here. The Greek is actually Komopolis, uh, uh, excuse me, Komopolis. And it's a combination of Kome, which means village and Polish with uh, Polis, which means city. So it's like a, it's an in-between between a village and a city 
which they just call, sometimes they translate like the market towns. So he doesn't want to just go back to the big city of Capernaum. He wants to go to these, these village cities, these village towns, these Komopolis, because that was the reason for which he came out, for which he came out and there. Here we can, uh, we can evaluate our last Greek word that I want to dive into, exerkomai, exerkomai, to, to come out. Let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. There's a way in which Jesus could be referring to coming out from Capernaum. That's why I came out from Capernaum so that we could move on to the next towns. But scholars think there's something else going on here. So if we look at, if we scour um, the rest of the gospels, we get this language elsewhere. For example, we get a John chapter 13, verse three, Jesus knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. He had exercomai. He had come from God and was going to God. So there's a sense that Jesus did not just exercomai come out of Capernaum, but he came from heaven. And he came from heaven for the purpose of preaching the gospel to the whole world. That's why they must go on to the next towns. The scholars will look at Exerchomai and they see in it the language of a divine envoy, a divine envoy. So for example, this, uh, this word Exerchomai occurs at the, uh, in the Septuagint translation of Daniel chapter nine, where the angel Gabriel says that uh, he has come out to give wisdom and understanding. This is at Daniel nine, chapter 22, Gabriel speaking to Daniel. He says, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out. I have ex to give you wisdom and understanding. Daniel uh, is visited by Gabriel because Gabriel is sent out. He's sent forth. He comes forth from the heavens. He comes forth from God, this kind of divine envoy. And so Jesus in the same way comes forth. He is sent forth, but not only that, this is what I want to kind of end on here. The, the language here of exercomai, it doesn't just mean like sent out for giving a message or, or coming out for giving a message, but also has the connotation of battle. So scripture scholars say that it can even be translation to, to translate it to come forward for battle. Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there for that is why I exercomai. For that is why I came out. That is why I came forth from God. That is why I came forth from heaven. But that is also why I came forth to do battle. I came forth to do battle. And Jesus is powerful for battle. Jesus is powerful for battle. I want to end here with a quote um, from uh, Daniel Harrington and John Donahue. This is another, another couple of Bible scholars who have a commentary on the gospel of Mark. Uh, this is uh, several sentences I've kind of smushed together to, to give the, the idea here. Jesus's word, they say, is more powerful than that of the scribes. It is more powerful than that of demonic powers. Jesus's word is so powerful. Jesus's word is so powerful that people abandon their occupations and follow him. I was uh, kind of jarred by this 
Um, because when I think of Jesus's words being powerful, I definitely think of exorcisms. I definitely think of miracles. I definitely think of theophanies, but how often am I willing to recognize that Jesus's words have power because they caused people to abandon their occupations and follow him. People left everything to follow him. That's the power of our Lord's words. And so we should pray to Jesus for healing. We should pray to Jesus to be freed from our demons. We should pray to Jesus for all of these sorts of divine interventions. But we should also pray to Jesus for the more simple, the more subtle divine interventions that are sometimes the hardest divine interventions to welcome. That Jesus would Jesus would allow us and soften our hearts to abandon our occupations. And here our Bible scholars, they meant occupations like our day job, right? But I love that English has this notion of like occupations, like I'm occupied by things. Are we willing to abandon those things that occupy us? To allow Jesus's words to be so powerful, to come crashing into our lives, come crashing into our lives and turn them upside down so that we can, like Simon and Andrew, like James and John, go with him onto the next towns, see him preach there, for that is why he came out. He exercomai, to do battle. Lord, may your word be so powerful that I let go of my occupations and follow you forever. <laughs> <laughs>